This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about temporary protected status, TPS. It's allowed immigrants and refugees from half a dozen countries that have terrible problems to stay in the United States, sometimes for decades. But now Trump is trying to get rid of all of them. Sasha Abramsky will report on the cruelty of Trump's efforts to repeal TPS. Also, we'll talk with Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker about the fight against Trump to slow climate change. But first, the State of the Union is not good. For comment on Donald Trump's speech Tuesday night, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, brother, but boy, are you right. It isn't good. Don't you think we should reject the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good? Oh, where has that gotten us? (laughs) You know, with all due respect. No, I mean, I I definitely respect moments of cooperation and, and certainly a focus on the common good. The problem is, I don't see how you focus on cooperation and the common good with a guy who kind of rushes in to the Capitol from shutting down the government for 35 days and then suddenly is Mr. Bipartisanship. And then, within minutes, repeats the language of the shutdown. Yeah. He was back up there doing the whole wall thing and coyotes and all that. And and so at the end of the day, you have a, a circumstance with Donald Trump where he obviously can read a <laughs> yes. uh, line that is crafted for him. And that's, that's impressive and, and give him credit. But the problem is he cannot stay on a theme. And I think this State of the Union address was jarring almost shocking in its sort of whipsawing from, you know, bipartisanship, common good, some commendable themes as regards remembering uh, the veterans of World War II and, and you know, a, a powerful story or so. But at the end of the day, ranting about socialism and, you know, ranting about immigrants and ranting about all sorts of other things 
that that at the that absolutely militated against uh, any sort of progress. It was you, a horrible speech, Jim. You called uh, Trump's speech cynical and crude. One of the most cynical moments, I thought, was when he said uh, that one of his uh, major priorities now is, quote, to protect patients with pre-existing conditions, close quote, and the Republicans jumped to their feet and applauded for protecting people with pre-existing conditions. But, but didn't the Trump administration refuse in court to defend the parts of the Affordable Fair Act that protect people with pre-existing conditions? Yeah, and they, they encouraged their allies to attack that. You know, I mean, with, with all due respect, John, you're right that a number of Republicans did jump to their feet to applaud, but it wasn't all the Republicans that were in the last Congress because a whole bunch of them got beat <laughs> by people yes. who pointed out that they had been trying to eliminate protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And on the campaign trail, they tried to lie about that. And as the results of the election showed, they were massively unsuccessful. I do believe that at that, you know, with that line and with that response to it, you saw what this State of the Union address was really about, which is 2020. I mean, this was, you know, Trump doing two things. One, laying the, the, you know, ley lines for his his base, you know, giving his, his supporters, you know, what they what they need uh, with all the immigration ranting and the socialism ranting and stuff like that. Uh, but then at the same time, knowing that our media, which, you know, tends to give the guy a tremendous platform, is going to suggest, or at least some people are going to suggest, oh, see, he's, he's moderate now on pre-existing conditions. So, you know, he's, he's playing a little bit of a political game. But I, I kind of think the American people are on to him and his, his cronies on this one. Well, there were some good things uh, that came out about Donald Trump uh, on Tuesday night. He's against childhood cancer. He's against killing Jews in Pittsburgh. He's for the Normandy landing in 1944. You've got quite a list there, John. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you know what? More power to him. I actually thought... The, you know, the, the storyline that he developed as regards uh, the U.S. troops and Holocaust survivors and the, the intersections there uh, was pretty well done. I mean, that was presidential, if you will. Um, and especially as we, we get to a point where we have a lot of anniversaries coming, where we're going to remember, you know, a, a moment where uh, Democrats and Republicans, by and large, really did come together to fight against fascism and to fight against authoritarianism not just abroad by the way but also to fight against those in america who as former vice president henry wallace warned might not you know fully manifest european style fashion fascism but would as wallace said uh place the dollar ahead of the man um and so i would just suggest to you that reflecting back on that time is really powerful and he is really good, and frankly, Donald Trump did it pretty well. But I fear that Donald Trump does not fully recognize what was so beautiful and what was so wonderful about that time, which was that Americans made immense sacrifices as internationalists, as people who were fighting on a global stage uh, to try and, and move the world toward uh, what Wendell Wilkie, a Republican, referred to as one world, 
what Henry Wallace referred to as the century of the common man. That was a, that was a poignant, powerful time. Uh, Trump gave us a little taste of it. Uh, I would love to keep talking about it, uh, but I think I think we've given him his due. He did have that remarkable line, in some ways, the most memorable line of the speech, quote, if there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation, close quote. I mean, that's that's a rapper's line. I wish that Jesse Jackson had been commenting <laughs> on this, because, yes. you know, that was, of course, Jackson's genius, was yeah. he often found those those reference points and that ability to to connect things in that, in, in frankly, a poetic way. Trump went for it. The problem was that, or is, that when Jesse Jackson did that, as a presidential candidate and as a civil rights leader and so many other things, you know, he did it on behalf of economic and social and racial justice. He was trying to call out the bad guys and, uh, and hopefully advance some tremendous causes. When Trump was doing it, right, he was basically saying, if you hold me, Donald Trump, and the people around me to account, we're not going to get anything done here. I mean, he was that was that was a blunt threat to Congress. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, standing in the in the Congress of the United States, saying you had better not respect the Constitution. You had better not follow the dictates of the Constitution, which require you, members of Congress, to hold me to account. Uh, when I violate my oath of office, when I am uh, a threat to uh, values and ideals of the American experiment. And, and I would only suggest that if you watch Nancy Pelosi at that moment, I don't think you saw her nodding. Mm-hmm. I think I'm very glad that Nancy Pelosi was, is in a position of power uh, and I think, I believe, is quite unwilling to bend uh, for that incredibly inappropriate uh, pressure from the president. And remember, even Richard Nixon didn't go this far. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. There was that other moment which you've referred to briefly. Tonight, quote, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country, close quote. Seems like he's nervous about that. Yeah, I thought so. Um, you know, it's like... I always think of this, if there was a soundtrack, which, which I favor, by the way, soundtracks behind <laughs> State of the Union addresses, yeah, because uh, I think it would make it more interesting, especially when we talk about an hour and a half like Trump. But, you know, if you had a soundtrack, right, when he was saying that, that would have had, like, the, the you know, John Williams, you know, orchestral theme music going on, right? It would be soaring <laughs> up, you know, we renew our vows or whatever. And, but then, interestingly enough, um, the, the camera shot would have ground to a halt when the camera shifted to Bernie Sanders. Because the fact of the matter is, if we, if you just recognize this, right, this, this juxtaposition, and, and many cameras did shift to Bernie Sanders, who's sitting there quietly, or to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democratic Socialists who sit in our House and our Senate. And, you know, it's just worthy of pointing out that polling shows, including polls released within recent days, that Bernie Sanders nationally would beat Donald Trump for the president uh, by about 10 to 12 points. Excellent. Uh, sometimes less, sometimes a little more. Uh, but, to, you know, and I don't say that Bernie Sanders would make America a socialist country, but what I would say is that the president might want to, you know, check the polling data, and if he did, he might be reminded that there's a very real prospect that he could get beat 
by a democratic socialist. Well, John, in closing, I am asking you to choose greatness. No matter the trials we face, no matter the challenges to come, we must go forward together. You know, John, that is what I think every time you call. (laughs) I want to go forward together with you. And as regards the president, I want to impeach him. John Nichols, freedomatthenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about Trump's campaign against immigrants with temporary protected status, TPS. Half a million people from Haiti, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Sudan, and Nepal have been allowed to live and work here because of catastrophically dangerous conditions in their home countries. Now Trump is trying to deport them. Sasha Abramsky has been reporting on residents with TPS. He writes regularly for The Nation, The American Prospect, and The Atlantic, and he's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty and, most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha, welcome back. John, thanks for having me on again. Tell us about the purpose of the Temporary Protected Status Program, why it was created in the first place. So this is a post-Cold War program. It, it, It was created under the first Bush presidency. And it was when there were a lot of people who were fleeing really bad situations, military situations, economic collapse, environmental collapse, in a certain number of countries, some in Central America, plus Haiti, plus Sudan, plus a couple other places. And it was essentially recognizing a messy reality. And the messy reality was there were an awful lot of people who had left and entered the United States either illegally or they'd come in as visitors and then overstayed their visas because they had nowhere to go back home. And the TPS program was designed to in some ways regulate them. So if they had not committed any crimes when they were here, what they would do is they would apply for temporary protected status. It cost just under $500 and it was renewable every 18 months. And they were given a work permit. They were allowed to live here without being in the shadows. They were allowed to get a driver's license and so on. And these programs have been renewed pretty much like clockwork every 18 months, both by Republicans and by Democrats. And Trump came in and he was being advised by people like Stephen Miller and a guy called Robert Law, who used to be from this anti-immigration group called FAIR. And they were being sort of put into senior positions of power in the bureaucracy, and they decided they were going to roll back TPS. So very early in the Trump presidency, you had this series of memos going out essentially saying it doesn't matter what the conditions on the ground are like, find a way to end TPS for El Salvadorans, for Hondurans, for Nicaraguans, for Haitians, for Sudanese, for Nepalese, and so on. And we're not talking about small numbers here. We're talking about half a million people, and we're talking about people who've been here working and living in the open for 20 years. And many of them have married in the interim and many of them have U.S. citizen children. And so essentially, Trump went into the business of de facto orphaning hundreds of thousands of children because he said, all right, we're going to roll back the protected status and deport the parents and the kids will be left behind in the United States as U.S. citizens. And to me, there's nothing more immoral than that. This this is a deliberate family wrecking policy. I just want to talk for another minute about 
exactly the toll here. You say there's half a million people who've been staying in the United States, in many cases for decades, from Central America, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, also Haiti, also Sudan, also Nepal. And how many of them does Trump want to send back? All of them. The, the Department of Homeland Security and the other agencies responsible have now recommended terminating it for pretty much every country impacted. And you're talking about El Salvador alone, nearly 200,000 people. You're talking about over 100,000 Hondurans. You're talking about 50,000 Haitians. And they're clustered. They're not all over the country. These are disproportionately in California, in Florida, I believe in Texas, New York, and a few other states. You know, if you're a Californian, it's almost certain you know somebody under TPS yeah. because there's so many people here. And you certainly, if you, have some, if you have kids in public school, almost certainly your kids are going to school with children of TPS holders. And those kids stand to lose their parents because of a deliberate government policy. I know that Trump ran into opposition, first of all, when he proposed this from within the State Department. Tell us briefly about that. Yeah, there were a whole bunch of lawsuits. When they started rolling back TPS, um, the ACLU, the National Temporary Protected Status Alliance, um, and several private law firms filed suit. And in the discovery process, they found a whole bunch of documents that essentially showed that the State Department was recommending one thing, namely the continuation of TPS for countries like El Salvador and Sudan because conditions on the ground were still so dangerous. And then these political appointees like Robert Law who had been moved to the U.S. Um, CIS, were recommending the exact opposite conclusion. So they were looking at all these findings, and all these findings said conditions are dangerous, we should renew TPS. And then they'd write a memo saying, well, that doesn't sit well, because what we really want to do is find a rationale for ending TPS. And so when all of those documents went into discovery, Edward Chen, a judge in California, ended up ruling that they couldn't go ahead and do this, that there was just the process itself had been so corrupted, it clearly stood contrary to the letter of the acts that were responsible for creating TPS. And so he put a hold on it. And so at the moment, like so many other immigration policies under Trump, whether it's asylum seekers or refugee admissions or whatever it might be, it's tied up in the courts. And so there is some kind of reprieve for these men and women and children, because until this has gone through the court system, there will be no deportations. Of course, the longer-term solution is Congress needs to pass a bill that legislates protections for TPS holders. And there are a lot of congressmen and a lot of congresswomen working on this at the moment. So it's the, the ACLU of Southern California that brought the uh, lawsuit that won a temporary injunction blocking the end of the program. That's now being appealed to the Ninth Circuit. But as a result of that, that affects... 300,000 immigrants who had lost their TPS uh, protections uh, under Trump's order, those 300,000 will be able to stay at least for another year. The government, of course, is appealing the decision. They'll probably lose at the Ninth Circuit, we think, and then they'll appeal it to the Supreme Court. So this is going to be going on for a couple of years. And in the meantime, as you say, there's been a focus on Congress. Tell us a little bit about the organizing to press Congress to change the TPS laws. Well, as it became clear that Trump had this program in his sights, there was a lot of organization on the ground that started going on, sort of very similar to the organizations that began emerging to protect DACA students when it became clear that DACA was under threat. 
And so you have these national alliances, you have the National Day Labour Organising Network, which is also very involved in this. You have many of the trade unions, you have civil rights groups, and they're all coming together and they're putting a tremendous amount of pressure on legislatures, especially in states like California and in Florida and so on, where there's a lot of TPS residents, to actually do something. And last year, there were some bipartisan efforts that are fixed. They didn't go anywhere, but they started floating around these efforts to try and tack TPS protections onto a big overhaul of the immigration system. And then this year, a California congressman called Jimmy Gomez, not this year, sorry, 2018, a California congressman called Jimmy Gomez has begun circulating a letter urging protections for TPS. And I believe that at least 80 Congress people have signed that at this point. So there is momentum building to provide more durable, longer-term protections. Of course, anything that Congress passes at this point is going to run into a Trump veto because right. it's very hard to see how Trump is going to, in any way, shape or form, see any political capital for himself by giving protection to this group of people. So I think at the moment, it really is this sort of rearguard defensive action to try and draw out these lawsuits long enough that hopefully they can draw it out post-Trump. What the Trump people say is the temporary protected status was supposed to be temporary. It wasn't supposed to last for a decade or two decades. Yeah. And what's the response to that? Well, they're not entirely wrong on that, that this is one of those messy programs that had the can kick down the road time and time and time again. And it was initially created as a temporary system, but it was created as a temporary system in response to systemic crises that weren't about to go away. So with El Salvador or with Haiti, the ostensible rationale for granting TPS might have changed, but nevertheless, conditions on the ground remain diabolical. And so what basically happened was every time the program was up for renewal for an individual country every 18 months, by default, the renewal became automatic. And so, yes, Trump's right. It was originally created as a temporary program. But if you create a temporary program and you then let people use it for two decades, like anyone else, they're going to embed themselves in a community. They're not going to view themselves as temporary and they're not going to behave as temporary. They're going to go to school. They're going to get mortgages. They're going to marry. They're going to set up businesses. They're going to have children. They're going to buy cars. They're going to set up retirement accounts. They're going to do the same things that you, me and everybody else who can does in the United States. And if you then throw them under the bus, you say, all right, we're going to arbitrarily tear up your status because it was originally supposed to be temporary. All you do is you shred the relationships they built up over decades. You break apart communities. You hurt children who are going to have to make this decision of staying or leaving with their parents. Nobody benefits. Sasha Abramsky, you can read his report on Trump and TPS at thenation.com. Sasha, thank you. It's great to have you back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Climate change brings extreme storms and extreme temperatures, and it also brings extinction of entire species of living things. And Donald Trump doesn't believe it or doesn't care. For comment, we turn to Elizabeth Colbert. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1999. Her three-part series for the magazine on global warming 
titled The Climate of Man, won the National Magazine Award and several other honors. In her unforgettable book, The Sixth Extinction, won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. I'm delighted to be able to say, Elizabeth Colbert, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Trump recently proposed opening 9 million acres of public lands in western states to oil and gas drilling by abolishing the Obama-era protections for this bird, the greater sage-grouse. If you Google sage-grouse and Donald Trump, you get more than 200,000 results, and many of them report that Democratic governors, as well as Republicans, praised Trump's proposal, including... Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, a Democrat, and Oregon Governor Kate Brown, also a Democrat. So the problem is not just Donald Trump. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, the the sage grouse is, you know, I have to confess I'm not entirely sure it's going to be litigated. um, You know, what's going to happen to the poor sage grouse is undoubtedly going to be bad uh, because its habitat is becoming, you know, fragmented terribly. But I think that the greater point that that you're uh, suggesting, which is that, you know, there's a tremendous pressure to develop a lot of Western resources from both sides of the aisle, um, and I should say Eastern, too. I don't know why I stopped at the West, even though we know that, you know, putting in more fossil fuel infrastructure is exactly the wrong thing to be doing, remains sort of a, a tremendous folly. You know, that's just our political folly that unfortunately is is bipartisan at this point. But why should the sage grouse be our main protection against more oil and gas drilling? Why is it the job of the sage grouse to keep it in the ground? Rolling back the protection of the sage grouse, this is one of many, many efforts there are to basically remove protections on certainly on public land and also to a certain extent on private land and, you know, full speed ahead uh, on getting as much oil and gas out of the ground as we can, and coal, I should also add. You can't really think of anything stupider uh, to be doing at a moment where we realize that our one of, you know, the major problems in the world, I guess I would argue the major problem in the world right now, uh, is, is climate change. So people care a lot about the possible extinction of a single species, a few people care about the sage-grouse, but a lot of people care about the pandas or the tigers or the rhinos. They don't care so much about the larger patterns that you take up in your book, The Sixth Extinction. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Well, I think, you know, that gets back to this issue of, right, storytelling, what do people, what tugs at our heartstrings, what what gets our attention in a world full of distractions and stories and problems, you know, wrestling for our attention, human, non-human. And, you know, certainly if you look at the big organizations that are devoted to conservation, you know, they always show you a picture of, of, as you say, of you know, a panda or, or, you know, maybe you get a frog. You you certainly don't usually get... uh, you know, some kind of creepy crawly invertebrate who, you know, is probably uh, the majority of the extinctions in the world or, you know, actually probably in the invertebrate world simply because the majority of species in the world are, are invertebrates. So looking at the big global patterns um, is really, it's really hard for people to get their minds around that. And I really appreciate that it's hard for people to get their minds around that. We all live in a particular place and are familiar with a particular flora and fauna, which 
for most you know people in the U.S. is a combination of introduced species and native species. And if you live in a city, you know it's it's a very very or even if you live in the country these days, it's a very already denuded. You know we we have already eliminated a lot of creatures. So um, I think that. You know, that's exactly, I guess, why I wrote this extinction to try uh, to bring this issue in all of its import home to people in some way. But I also ended up, you know, arranging it, sort of sort of narrating it through different species because, you know, a pattern is not really a good story. Your scientists say part of the problem is that there are several forces that lead to species extinction deforestation, loss of habitat, invasive species. And you say in the sixth extinction that what we're doing to the chemistry of the ocean is number one. Well, a lot of scientists would say that changing the chemistry of the oceans, which is actually pretty difficult to do, it has occurred very, very rarely in Earth history uh, because the oceans are, are vast and they're chemically buffered against change. Um, but nevertheless, by dumping so much CO2 into the atmosphere, we are changing the chemistry of the oceans. That that is probably, in, at the end of the day, uh, yeah, the most dangerous thing we're doing. And why is that? Well, I think that they, that is because, for a couple of reasons. First of all, as I say, simply the oceans, you know, are so much of the the biosphere. Really, you know, we're land creatures, but. But really, the oceans cover most of the surface of the Earth, as any as any kid learns. So that's where a lot, a lot of life on Earth resides. Um, but secondly, as I say, because you know, life on land, you know, climate change is uh, certainly going to be a very, very, very big stressor for a lot of creatures, and going to drive a lot of extinctions, probably. Um, but there have been temperature swings in you know in the history of planet Earth. Uh, there quite possibly, you know, has never been, uh, or only at varied times of extreme uh, biological crisis, uh, has there been a change in ocean chemistry that's occurring as rapidly as right now. Um, so when you think about it, creatures probably just do not have, uh, if you don't have any history with something, the odds that you're going to be able to adapt to it, uh, you know, are, are a lot lower. Uh, so the the way that we are screwing with the oceans, uh, which I also point out are the source of, you know, most of our oxygen and things like that, uh, is, 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 is bound to have very significant consequences. And there's an unevenness to all of the uh, effects of climate change on species extinction. While many species are going extinct, a few are thriving. You call them disaster taxa, T-A-X-A, a great name. Tell us about disaster taxa. Well, there are some, I mean, once again, intuitively people know that, you know, you know, rats do quite well in urban environments. Um, mosquitoes are doing really well. Uh, there are certain taxa, cockroaches, you know, there are certain groups of creatures that follow people around, uh, and when humans create a disturbance, we'll call it that, or build a city or, you know, whatever we do, tend to thrive at the expense uh, as as other species cannot more, uh, you know, I don't know what to call them. They're not exactly delicate, but they're adapted to different conditions. So there there are species, certain species that thrive on disturbance, and that's even true in a natural 
in the natural world, as it were, you know, there's certain species that when there's a big forest fire, which, you know, had, there have been throughout history, would come in, would be the first ones to establish in, a, in an area that had been devastated by fire. So there are certain, you know, that's a pattern, that's a natural pattern, and now we also see that humans are a kind of disturbance that favor certain species. The reviewer of your book, The Sixth Extinction in Harper's, pointed to one solution, I guess you could call it. Evolution will take its course. Life recovered from the fifth extinction, the death of the dinosaurs. It took a long time, but the Earth has plenty of time to recover from the current one, the sixth. After we are gone, the rats and the cockroaches and the other disaster taxa will thrive and evolve. What do you think about that for the next chapter of evolution on Earth? Well, I, I think if you're willing to take that very long view that, you know, 10 or 20 million years from now, there'll be a new, a new fauna and a new flora that will emerge from the wreckage that we will leave. Uh, yes, that's true, uh, probably. <laughs> but I don't think people really think in those terms. I think most of us are concerned about the world that our kids are going to inherit and our grandchildren uh, and that's probably, you know, as far out as we get. And we're not even, we're not doing a pretty, pretty lousy job uh, of even handing over a habitable planet to our kids. So, you know, I suppose if you want to take comfort in that idea, you know, I, I don't want to prevent you from doing so. But I, I, I don't think that's actually um, very useful given this current situation. It's easy to feel hopeless about species extinction after reading your book. But your book does not end with uh, what is to be done, you know, a six-point program. You don't say, you know, drive a Prius or avoid plastic bags. It seems like that won't really do it. Do you have hope at this point? Well, I, I think someone recently made a, gave a talk. He said, you know, what we, what we need is not hope but, but, but courage. I mean, I think there's way too much talk about you know, are you hopeful? Are you not like your mood? That that's not really relevant um, at this point. What's what's relevant is, you know, are we gonna take action or not? You know, increasingly we see the effects of, of climate change and all of the other problems that are in the book, and we, to a certain extent, and only to a certain extent, I want to say, know what we have to do. And if we did those things that we know how to do, and we know that we you know, are going to have to do, if we did them as rapidly as possible, we would uh, certainly make a difference. Okay, that I don't want to say we would not still have very high extinction rates, because we probably would, but we would be uh, bringing that curve down. And we're not doing those things. So until we start doing those things, you know, we don't really deserve, you know, to be very hopeful, to be honest. Elizabeth Colbert, her book is The Sixth Extinction. Thank you, Elizabeth. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. 
Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.